Well, how many of you have ever experienced this? Or maybe what you experienced was more like this. Today, we're beginning a brand new series, and we're going to talk about this idea of being stuck. And in this series, when we talk about being stuck, we're going to talk about getting stuck in all kinds of ways. Stuck in our finances, right? Maybe you've gotten yourself stuck financially because of debt or something that was beyond your control. Uh, maybe stuck in our marriage. Maybe your marriage isn't going so well, or maybe it was going really well, and then something happened, and you got stuck relationally, stuck in terms of your health even. Maybe you've let your health go, right? Stuck in any area of life, stuck professionally, stuck academically, stuck relationally. There's all kinds of ways that we get stuck. Some of you, let's be honest, the person you're dating right now has got you stuck and you didn't see it at first, or, or maybe you did, but if you're honest with yourself, this is what you thought, and you would never say this out loud, so I, I will, um, but, but this is what you thought. You thought, okay, well, it's all gonna be fine because I'm gonna fix them, I'm gonna fix them. Right now, if that's you, let me just say this, listen. You fix a dog, you don't fix a spouse, okay? Now, that's another message for another day. Maybe you've gotten stuck by a habit, something that used to be a, a pastime has turned into a pathway. Maybe something that started as being a social thing has become a secret thing. Maybe for you right now, actually, you're feeling great because you were stuck, but now you're not. Life is good, right? It was just six months ago that we were stuck, but now we're not stuck, and life is good. And you know, right? You're smart enough to know that oftentimes that's just kind of the way life seems to go. Because the thing that all of us have in common, whether you're religious or not, a church person or not, follower of Jesus or not, the thing that all of us have in common is that sometimes in life we just get stuck. And sometimes we get stuck because of dumb things that we do. And sometimes we get stuck because of things other people do. And that's just kind of the way that life goes. But see, here's some good news. It's not just you. It's not. It's not just your life. It's not just your family. It's not just your marriage. It's not just your relationships. It's not just you. See, here's what we're going to talk about together for the next couple of weeks. And this is something that we rarely think about, but it's the fact that there are things that actually get us stuck in life, right? It's the things that get us stuck in life that bring us together. Because see, all of us, we have this tendency to look around and think, okay, everybody looks good. Everybody smells good. Everybody dresses up good. And so it must just be me. And yet the truth is, it is the very things that get us stuck in life that bring us together. And here's why that's so important for us to understand. Because it means that when you see someone else who is stuck, when you see somebody making a decision and, and you think to yourself, okay, you're going to regret that, or if you keep doing that, you're going you're to regret that. If you live that way, if you continue to talk to your wife that way, if you keep talking to your kids that way, if you continue to treat your husband that way, before we are critical, right, we need to remember, we need to remember that we have been stuck as well. And when it comes to the people around us who are stuck right now, we should be students and not critics. Because again, here's something that we all know, right? Isn't it true that when you hear the backstory of somebody who's gotten stuck, you see that person differently? When you hear their story and their circumstances and what it is that, that got them stuck, where they came from, isn't it true that you, you actually breathe a little deeply and suddenly you're more sorry for them than you are critical of them? In fact, maybe one of the reasons that you haven't been in church for a long time, perhaps one of the reasons that you've shut the whole church thing down, or maybe the reason why right now you're watching as opposed to, to going, is because at some point in life you were around some church people and you were stuck. Your marriage was stuck. Your family was stuck. Things weren't going well for you financially. And the church people you knew, they, were, they, they just didn't listen to your story. They didn't ask about your story. They, there was little to no compassion. And you thought, okay, if that's what church is all about, then forget it. 
right? And listen, if that's been your experience with church, then I'm sorry for that. That is not what Jesus wants his church to be. And so as we explore this topic together and as we look at what Jesus has to say about all this, we're going to discover that we should be students rather than critics when it comes to the people around us because we've all been stuck and we're all just one dumb decision away from being stuck or getting stuck or we're just one dumb decision away that somebody else is going to make from being stuck. It's why Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, listen, yank the plank. Right now, listen, I understand that may not be exactly what Jesus said, but you remember this. We talked about this together earlier this summer. Jesus said this. He said, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right? In other words, Jesus is saying, before we get all amped up about what has somebody else stuck in their life, I need to look in the mirror. And when I look in the mirror, I need to do a little bit of a history lesson because that person in the mirror has been stuck at some point in their past as well. Now, the other reason why this is so important is because sometimes, right? Sometimes when, when you get stuck, when I get stuck, you can't get out by yourself. I mean, being stuck is a reminder that we do, in fact, need one another because we've all been in holes that were so deep that when we looked up, we realized, you know what? Okay, I know I dug this hole myself, but there is no way I can get out of this by myself. And if you've ever had someone stop and help you when you were stuck, it is a reminder that that is what our response is to be to the people around us. In fact, imagine where the church would be today. Imagine what the reputation of the church would be today if we simply remembered that. Because again, here's something that followers of Jesus have always believed as it relates to being stuck. Followers of Jesus have always believed that the things that get us stuck are the very things that actually brings God near. Followers of Jesus have always believed that the gospel is about God looking down on a very stuck world and deciding, okay, instead of ignoring it, Instead of just burning it up, instead of condemning it, I think I'll jump right into the middle of it. In fact, it's one of the reasons why when Jesus showed up, people didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Because in the ancient world, much like the, the world that we live in today, when ancient people thought about a God or the gods interacting with people who were stuck, the only thing they ever expected was punishment. The only thing they ever expected was judgment. The only thing they expected was lightning bolts from the sky. They expected all the worst. But when Jesus showed up, he introduced a word into our understanding of God that was so astounding, it was so unusual, it was so unexpected that most people missed it. It was the word grace. And so if you're stuck, if your life is stuck, if your family, your marriage, your relationships are stuck, we get that. All of us have that in common. And the gospel is for you because at the heart of the gospel is Jesus coming into this world not to judge you but to free you from what has you stuck. And so today as we begin this new series together, we're going to focus our attention on something else that followers of Jesus have always believed. And this may be a new thought for you even if you have been a follower of Jesus for a long time. But it's the fact that the parts of life where we get stuck, those are the very parts that reveal God. Right? The things that get us stuck in this life are, in fact, a lens which reveal the reality of God. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul who explains all of this to us in a letter that he wrote to the followers of Jesus living in the city of Rome. In Romans chapter 3, he says this. He says, Now we know... That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under 
the law, which is just really a fancy way of saying, listen, if, if, you, if you are under a law, then a law is over you, right? If you're an American citizen, you're under the Constitution, and the Constitution is over you. When you go to college, you take a job with a company, that college or that employer's rules apply to you. Now, I don't have to follow the rules of your employer, and I don't have to follow the rules of your college or your team. Because, see, I never got under those rules in the first place. But you do because they are over you, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And when the Apostle Paul uses the term law here, what he's referring to specifically is the law of God. And, and the law of God in, in this context could actually be a couple of things. If you are an Orthodox Jewish person, it would be the actual law of God as found in the Old Testament. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, it would be the law of Jesus. And the law of Jesus is that you do for other people what Jesus has done for you. That is the law. That is the commandment of Jesus. But let's say you're not Jewish and let's say you're not a follower of Jesus. Then we can make it even broader than that. right? This could even be simply the law of your own conscience. Because there are things that you just intuitively know you should do and you should not do. You are under the law of your conscience. You feel accountable to the law of your conscience. It is over you, and you are under it. Now, the interesting thing is this. See, there's something else that all of us have in common. All of us, right, all of us, because all of us have been stuck at some point, all of us fall short of whatever standard we actually think the Apostle Paul is referring to, whether it's God's standard in the Old Testament, Jesus' standard in the New Testament, or even the standard of our own conscience. Whatever standard we want to use, we all fall short of it from time to time. And see, when we do, and when somebody catches us, whether it's a parent or it's someone we work for, maybe it's a husband, a wife, a friend, a co-worker, whoever it might be, when we know we're busted, all of us, we either say or we think the very same thing. In fact, we've said this a thousand times. You've heard this a thousand times. All of us in that situation, we all say, well, listen, nobody is perfect. Now, here's why this is so important. When we say this, we are saying something that is so big and so transformational, but honestly, most of us, we just miss it because of how common this phrase is. But when we say or when we think, well, listen, nobody's perfect, what we are saying is that there is, in fact, a perfect that nobody is, right? That there is a law, there is a morality, there is an ethic, there is something that exists, and I, I don't live up to it. I know it exists, I know it's out there, and I know I fall short. See, whenever you acknowledge no one's perfect and I'm not perfect, you're acknowledging that there is a perfect that nobody is. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is explaining this to us. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that, right? In other words, this experience isn't a coincidence. There is, in fact, a purpose behind this phenomenon. But the purpose isn't to make us gooder. Right? It's not to make us better people. No, the purpose, he tells us, is so that every mouth may be silenced. Right, So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world, so, so this is all of us, the whole world would be held accountable to God. Right? In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this, that there is a law that we're all aware of in some specific way or some general way, and we all know that in some way we fall short of that law. And consequently, we have all got some type of accountability to it. And see, the Apostle Paul says the point of that, 
right? The point of the struggle, the point of that tension, the point of that guilt that you feel perhaps, the point of all that is not so that we will be perfect. It is not so that you would feel bad and one day you're finally going to perfect yourself. He says, no, that is not the point at all. The point of the law, the point of the struggle, the point of the tension is that I would be silenced. That when I'm about to look at you and be critical of you, I would be silenced because I fall short as well. That the whole world is held accountable to God because nobody has room to talk. And we are all accountable to the source of the law that we fall short of. And we can hear that law in the Old Testament and we can hear it from Jesus and we can even hear it in those inconvenient oughts and ought nots of our own conscience. And then the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 20 and he says this. He says, therefore, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, right? In other words, you're never going to be so good that God says that you're good enough, right? Because once you get stuck, you've been stuck. And, and sure, it's easy to do better from that point forward. But what about all those times in my past? See, every single one of us, we can relate to this at least relationally, right? And here's his point. No one's going to be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. He says, rather, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin or conscious of our failure. That the law, in fact, makes us conscious of the things that we don't do. It's perhaps one of the reasons why you don't like church. It's one of the reasons, perhaps, that you quit going to church. It's because nobody likes to be reminded of the fact that they don't measure up. Now, I want to pause here for, for just a moment and kind of let that sit. Because, see, last week, RJ talked about illusions and the lies that the enemy often tells us about ourselves. And if you missed one or both of those messages, I strongly encourage you to go back and, and watch both of them. They are very significant and very important messages for all of us. But please do not miss what I'm about to say. There is a tremendous difference between believing the lies the enemy tells you about yourself and listening to what can be uncomfortable truth that the Holy Spirit reveals to you. And here's how you know the difference. See, the enemy tries to condemn you and shame you. The Holy Spirit wants to compel you and convict you. One leads to self-hatred and self-destruction. The other leads to transformation. Now, this is the tough part because both are hard. And both can be heartbreaking. But learning to understand the difference, that is what the Apostle Paul is helping us to do in this scripture. It's what he means when later on in a couple other of his books, he uses the phrase of learning to walk by the Spirit. Right? But still, the truth is, right? none of us, no, nobody likes to be reminded of the fact that they are not what they ought to be. But again, there's no way to escape it. And let's just be honest, right? It is heartbreaking, isn't it? Because isn't it just kind of the same thing over and over? Isn't it that habit that, that you just can't seem to, to break? Isn't it that thing that you've told your husband or you've told your wife a thousand times that you're going to stop or you're going to start or, or you've told your kids, you've promised your kids a thousand times you're going to change and yet you're never able to stop or start or change? And come on, we're adults. In that moment, isn't it true that what you feel is a little bit heartbreaking? 
And see, listen, in that moment, when we feel that, we are experiencing the law for exactly the reason God gave it. And this is so subtle and it's so easy to miss, but this is oh so important. The reason you know when you're stuck, the reason you know what stuck feels like is because stuck always has a reference point. There is always unstuck. You know what the marriage should, should look like. You know how you should behave. You know how you should respond. You know that you should be able to break the habit. You know that you shouldn't be in that relationship. Every stuck has an unstuck. And see, listen, this is the Apostle Paul's point. It is the awareness, right? It is the awareness of being stuck that awakens us to something outside of us to which we are accountable. And this is a bit counterintuitive, but accountable is hopeful. It means that God is actually speaking to our hearts about his best for us. It's the awareness of being stuck. It is the awareness of the fact that I can't even keep up with where I think I should be. I can't even live up to my own expectations of myself. So if there is a God, I'm sure I can't live up to God's explanations or expectations. And so my natural inclination is to try harder and harder and harder. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no, no. God did not put that in you so that you would try harder. Don't miss this. Trying harder, he would say, isn't going to make anything better. It's just going to sink you deeper and deeper. No, God speaks to you through your conscience so that you will become aware that there is something. There is someone outside of you to whom you are accountable. During the Second World War, there was a, a British scholar who became a follower of Jesus when he was, in fact, a middle-aged adult. You might be familiar with him. His name is C.S. Lewis, and in one of his most famous books, Mere Christianity, he talks about this very same phenomenon that we're talking about today, but he uses different terms. He talks about it in terms of watching two people quarrel, right? Now, that's his word, and that's a word that, that we don't use anymore. In fact, the next time your kids are fighting, um, try telling your kids, hey, stop quarreling, right? Because they'll stop, and they'll be like, what, what, are you, what are you even talking about? Well, well, this is what he says. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, when I watch two people quarrel, here's what I'm aware of. There are two people who are both appealing to a standard that neither of them created and neither of them can escape. He says, when two people quarrel, it's like they're saying, okay, you're not fair. No, I am fair. No, you're not fair. Well, that's not just. It is just. No, you're just not sensitive. Well, I am sensitive. He said that whenever two people quarrel, if you listen, you'll notice that they're both appealing to the same standard which is outside of them that neither of them created. And see, as an atheist, this just bugged him. And it was like, okay, where in the world did this come from? And see, this was the realization that he could not escape. And ultimately, this is what led him to becoming a follower of Jesus. And then he, later on in his book, he says this. He says, rarely in a quarrel between two people will you hear one of them say, and in his quote, he uses a, a, a word that British people can pull off but it's a little shocking to us Americans sometimes. He says, okay, rarely in a quarrel between two people will you hear one of them say, well, well, forget your standard. 
In other words, forget justice, forget mercy, forget sensitivity, forget being a great husband, forget being a great wife, just, just forget it. In other words, no one ever gets rid of the standard. What they do, he says, is to argue that they are keeping the standard better than the other person thinks they're keeping it. Or here's what we do. We argue that there's a good reason why I shouldn't have to keep the standard, but you do. And see, as an atheist, this just bugs C.S. Lewis to death. And he could not figure out why it is that all over the world, even though it takes different shapes and different forms, why is it that all over the world there's this thing that we feel accountable to that we just can't get rid of and clearly we didn't create it because if we created it we would just get rid of it and then not feel bad about our behavior right he realized that there is this sense of built-in heart-driven sense of ethics and morality that we just can't seem to jettison as much as we try and then he goes on and he says this in fact, this is what drove him to become a theist and, and finally a follower of Jesus. He said, there is something above and beyond the ordinary facts of, of, of human behavior, and it's quite definitely real. In other words, it's not something that we just imagine. No, he says, it is a real law, something which none of us made. We didn't create it, but which we find. And then I love the way that he says this. He says, it is pressing on us. Now, here's what he's saying. It's what the Apostle Paul was saying. This is what you, this is what I, this is what every single person listening and watching right now, what we have all experienced. We have all felt the pressure of conscience, the pressure of ought. And see, the Apostle Paul says, and C.S. Lewis says, and what I want to convince you of is that this pressure is the gracious presence of of God, that this pressure that we can't escape, that is universal in every single culture, it is not the pressure of an angry God pushing us to be better people or to behave. It is the presence, it is the thumbprint of a loving Heavenly Father anxious to bring grace into the lives of people who are stuck. You know what that means? It means that while you are wrestling with whatever it is that has you stuck right now, you're not alone. You're not alone if you are a follower of Jesus, and you're not alone if you couldn't care less about Jesus. And the proof, the proof is that pressure that you feel and I feel that is a reminder of something more, something better, something that we call grace. Now, if you've ever watched a toddler trying to learn how to walk, you've experienced this. You see those big eyes and you see that big smile and, and those little arms and those little legs. You see them slowly moving and swaying and kind of shaking as they make their way towards you. And you know, right? You know before it ever even happens that after one or two or maybe five of those big, slow, cautious steps, right? Suddenly, boom, and they're on the floor. And in that moment, what do you do? Do you scold and condemn and say, you know, if you were a little bit stronger, if you were a little bit faster, if you weren't quite so, no. You clap and you cheer and you lift that precious little one into your arms and you hug them and then you set them down and you help them to try again. And if that is what you would do, how much more? How much more? your Father in heaven. Stuck. Maybe it's not what we think. We're going to pick it up there together next week. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father,
Father, regardless of, of what, what we believe about you, regardless of how seriously we take the Bible or, or Jesus or any of this, Father, this is what every single one of us we know today, that whatever the standard is, we fall short. Whatever the standard is, it means we're not perfect, which means that there is a perfect that we are not. And so, Father, I pray for all of us today that as we consider where we are stuck and what has us stuck in life right now, that we would, in fact, be reminded of your presence and the fact that we can identify your presence is a reminder that you are the God who has placed in our hearts a picture of what life could be and what life should be. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just give us all the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And we ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus.